If you're still deciding on your spring break getaway, Amtrak's got just the ticket. You can visit cities from D.C. and Philly to New York and Boston, all while enjoying more sustainable travel. Amtrak produces up to 83% less carbon emissions than traveling by car or plane. And did we mention the extra legroom and comfy seats? Book early and save at Amtrak.com. Click or tap the banner. Emissions comparisons vary depending on route and locomotive type. Restrictions may apply. back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 121, Our Owen. On July 22nd, 1403, Henry Percy and his uncle were dead. The Earl of Northumbria, his father, was forced to leave the battlefield and eventually gave homage again to Henry. This must have been a very bitter pill to swallow in the face of the death of his son and the execution of his brother. In Wales, Glyndwr must have been very upset to lose such a valuable allies, ones who might have restored the north-south split in England and kept Wales safe from other incursions. Either way, their defeat meant that Owen would have to continue to look for allies outside of the island. In August of 1403, Owen continued his course of the summer. The capture of the South Welsh marches and the castles which were dotting the landscape the English in these castles were trying to keep themselves supplied to fight off the coming storm. The capture of the English capital in Wales, Carmarthen, earlier in the summer, had created a runaway train for the Welsh leader. He was gaining support throughout the region, as mentioned in the previous episode, and with that he could then mount more and more conventional campaigns on the English front. Up till this point, as we mentioned last few episodes, Owen was largely restricted to more uh, unconventional warfare means, guerrilla tactics, raiding supply lines, attacking towns that were either weakly defended or undefended, basically doing things that you would see an insurgency do. But as time has gone on, as the years have gone by, it's turning more and more into an actual rebellion, an actual revolt, and an actual war rather than just being an insurgency, and it was creating a lot of pain for everyone. In Flint, the work of Glyndor's successes and propaganda had largely led the English town to join the side of the Welsh rebels. They would not be the first or last English-constructed border town or English people that would throw their lot in with Glyndor. Many of his in-laws were English, of course, and were very much on his side. And now a growing number were starting to see where things were going. Many of the border cities and towns in English-controlled territories were coming to their own agreements with the Welsh on, through their own developments. Many built individual truces to avoid being brought into the conflict. This was not surprising, and as an example of something similar, in North America during the War of 1812... A war which was fought between Britain and the USA during the latter years of the Napoleonic Wars, New England states near the maritime colonies of Nova Scotia and New Brunswick effectively were at peace while the rest of the colonies and states were fighting tooth and nail. The reason for this was twofold. One was the closeness of the border. Many would be worried about the conflict coming into their towns and wreaking economic damage 
and breaking relations that had been a part of their communities for many, many years. And that mindset then drove a lot of the attitudes that and likely the interwoven familial contacts built bridges where many of the English had lived in fear and wanted revenge against their neighbors. This flowing success of the Welsh may have created an adoration amongst the Welsh community at large and some within the English living in Wales. It also created animosity in England. In one case, which was captured by Dr. Bro in his very excellent book, a monk in St. Albans wrote, Christ, splendor of God, I beseech you, destroy Glyndwr. The rebellion at its core was working and Glyndwr was reaching a pinnacle. But if he was actually to win, he needed to seek realistically a larger alliance. It was no good just to continue to wear the English down. He needed to win and he needed that win to stick. And Wales was in no position to do that on its own. The English continued to have the same advantage it had in the days of Henry III and Edward I. Men, money, and supplies. Knowing what we know now, I have often thought had a thought experiment. What if the Britons in the 6th and 7th centuries were able to band together well enough that they could have held on to Wessex and Mercia, keep these two border areas, and they might have given the Britons the farmland and the resources needed to cling on against the Saxons and later Norman invaders. But realistically, had they been able to do this, they would have done so in real timeline. It was not just bad luck or misfortune, it was a category of issues that defeated the Britons and later the Welsh in these wars. And from that perspective and understanding that reason, we have to be cognizant that it's not so simple as to say, well, if they only had this in an alternate timeline, if they'd have just had that, the realistic truth that the Welsh faced right from the beginning of the arrival of the Normans was that they had trouble because they just didn't have the financial and agricultural resources to be able to compete with the English head on. And unlike the Scottish didn't have easily defended areas where they could hold them off in a lot of respects. And largely this came about because the Welsh marches were taken early on in the Norman invasion. Had that not happened, things might be very different. But the reality of it was they did, and a lot of what they controlled was the economic and agricultural engine of Wales at the time. And so it left them without having that very valuable resource, specifically when you look at Doithbarth, for example. A lot of that area is very much a growable area. A lot of South Wales, similar situation. But because they were relatively flat, because they were fairly fertile, they were easy targets for these Norman invaders to take, and it created this problem. So, again, it's an easy target to say, if only, if only, if only. But we have to be realistic and say, this is what they had to deal with. This is what, you know, they were brought to the table facing. And in that situation, acknowledge that Owen did very well with what he had. You know, the, the things he'd been given had given him the opportunity to do things that not many others had been able to do. Certainly, I would argue he comes across much better as a leader than Llewellyn did at the end of his reign, where he seemed to lose control of things and, and his desire to not be involved in the larger conflict actually did as much to bring him into the conflict at a negative point and set him up for defeat. And 
in some ways one could argue that that just made things so much worse. So with that all in mind, let's get back to the point. Owen needed assistance, and as we have mentioned, it had to come from an enemy with a long history with the English, one who had their own axe to grind and would be, for political and military reasons, wanting to see the King of England brought down, or at the very least humiliated. The Welsh forces in mid-August attacked Kidwelly Castle. While they failed to take it, they apparently left them with a number of casualties, while citizens in Herefordshire were terrified as the Welsh now were crossing the border and its leaders in the area, this being in Hereford and the surrounding area, pled with Henry for action before they lost the Shire. This sounds like a bit of a stretch, let's be honest, but it was obvious that the king needed to do something. If the Welsh were able to, with impunity, invade England, it then created more and more headaches for someone who wasn't winning battles and wasn't winning and making inroads. Henry, once again, launched an attack on the Welsh in the latter part of the summer of 1403, trying to once again bring Glendur to heel and to show that he could maintain English fortified towns and castles. He arrived at Carmarthen, finally taking it back, what remained, and leaving behind a large force to deal with other incursions by the Welsh. Four years running, Henry had tried to put down the rebels, and four times under his personal leadership, failed miserably. You can understand under these circumstances how both sides must have seen Glyndor as a scourge for the English, and why prophecy gets so wrapped up into Glyndor's thought processes into his, into the way the Welsh themselves looked at him from a poetic standpoint. This is a man who basically led Henry IV around on the end of a stick and used that stick to beat him for the early part of this war, and pretty much Henry couldn't seem to catch him. It was like trying to hold water in a bare hand. It just never worked, and it led to frustration and defeat, and so all of these things would have driven Henry to be much more unwilling to give in, unwilling to retreat, and more willing to continue the attacks and the fighting in ways that probably weren't very wise. And because of all of this, the Welsh themselves had waited for Henry to recross the border. They were prepared every time he came in. It was like a wave coming in on the beach. You fled, waited for the tide to go back out again, then you came back out. And effectively, that's what they were doing. And because they had been campaigning with better logistics and flexible planning, it allowed them to punch holes in the English defenses across many fronts. In the country... English peasants and lords were suffering a drought that summer of 1403, which would have harsh consequences on English food supplies. Even as they were working to keep the Welsh from importing food and other goods from England, the government was unable to get help from the French, who, for political reasons, withheld their own wheat supplies from England. Glendur attacked across the southwest and had likely added to the hardship of the English because he was burning and taking so much, and likely in this process had bulked up his own forces as men would join in part to stay fed and have some sort of livelihood in the midst of what would have been a rather sharp downturn in an agriculturally driven economy torn by war and now drought. This drought, which we'd mentioned... How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy... 
clarity, the calm. Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba Effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Was one that was felt in more than just England, as far away as the Byzantine Empire, or at least what was left of it at this point, there were mentions of the drought that summer. The refusal of the French to sell their wheat to the English meant that they knew they had their enemies in a tight spot and were looking to turn the screws. The Earl of Pembroke, who was sent to negotiate, could not have been very happy to return empty-handed, and certainly the French must have been enjoying this problem that they had created for the English. With autumn beginning to set in, and with Henry back in England, the Welsh forces turned their attention now to the southeast, attacking Cardiff and area. This was done by sea, which shows that the Welsh were able to meet the English in various ways and on various fronts. The king, for his part, had set up the Duke of York as his commander in South Wales to replace Prince Henry, who of course had been injured earlier in that year. He also replaced leaders in the Brecons in an attempt to try and reorganize his forces, gain better control, and I assume actually have better strategic and preferably more initiative across the front. But this unfortunately appears to be a little more than moving the deck chairs on the Titanic as far as the English were concerned. While they did bring in new leaders. The new leaders didn't do anything different than what the old leaders had done, which was basically sit in their forts and do nothing. The Welsh knowledge of the military tactics of the English and the strategies were wearing them out financially, and every failed attack by the king continued to make the English forces question their leadership, not something you want troops that are critical to any success you might have to start thinking. The Welsh continued to put up pressure across the country, and the effect on morale was starting to break English resistance. English defenders in Carmarthen, as an example, were so worn down they demanded to leave and that they would not stay in Wales for anything. You can see how this would be why I made the original comparisons in this particular case to Vietnam. The same sense of occupation forces, which had a futile attempt at remaining in charge and keeping hold of territory had effectively received the similar experience and a similar effect while in this case the english had actually lost battles the welsh efforts had started to hit and the english were starting to lose hope the english were now in a spot where any sort of major welsh success would turn the war into a rout in early october henry dawn attacked kidwelly again this time with French and Breton forces as part of his command. They were likely mercenaries, but still the fact that they had them showed that the Welsh rebels were reaching a tipping point, one that was much more dangerous for Henry. 
The French used these support troops to help give them much more information on how the war was going and how much success this rebel Glyndor was actually having. It must have heartened them considerably. The commander in Kidwelly was blunt to his masters in London over the, how the situation looked. The English leader said, Henry Don and all the rebels of South Wales, aided by men of France and Brittany, are advancing on the castle with all their power. They have destroyed all the corn, which at this stage means wheat, as corn was not discovered by the Europeans at this point, and of your subjects in the countryside all around the castle. Many of the townsmen of Kidwelly have fled to England with their wives and children. The rest have retreated to the castle and are in fear of the, for their lives. This was a scary time to be an Englishman in a Welsh countryside, or worse yet, in a town. If you were not on the side with the Welsh, you were a target, and one that was not going to be treated well. The idea that the Welsh had a massive force from all of South Wales was very unlikely, but the fear in this letter is unmistakable. The forces facing the English had them in a panic, and they were fleeing in the face of this pressure. And understandable if i had a family and i was in this kind of situation where any minute i could lose everything it might be worth leaving behind my possessions and leaving behind my effectively my agricultural wealth if it saved my life and preserved my family and worse yet for the english it was happening across multiple locations at once it caused the english forces to meet all various requests and demands at a pace that was breaking them as you can imagine, if you have multiple fronts and multiple attacks happening all at the same time with multiple commanders demanding and asking and requesting for assistance, eventually they're just not going to be able to meet them all. And it was creating a massive bit of chaos on the English ability to supply their lines, to send troops to meet the different attacks to be able to break the sieges and largely they were very unsuccessful at meeting the Welsh before they would attack. Now they might stop them but they weren't going to be able to keep them from attacking again and again and again and part of the problem was a homegrown one. Among the forces attacking Kidwelly were men who had formerly been their stewards and receivers who had lost their positions due to the Parliament's anti-Welsh legislation. Henry had given them a large axe to grind, and now these men, all Welsh, but once in, effectively within the English uh, stewardship, were now bringing these to grind against their former English colleagues. The town of Kidwelly was burned to ground and many of its citizens died in this attack. Only the castle stood up to the attack, and the Welsh gave up the siege eventually once winter sent in. Likely, as they would lose troops and have trouble holding the area anyway, it wasn't seen to be worth it. Like other castles in South Wales, Kidwelly held out, but all that was left for the English residents were as ash. The Welsh had made it clear that they would do what they had to do to win this war, and they made it very clear that the English were not welcome if they were not going to be on side. Owen, by the late autumn, was continuing to progress his leadership and take oaths from the locals in South Wales, who would make life miserable for the English in the marches. Kidwelly Castle, as we mentioned, survived in English hands because of its close links to Bristol across the Channel. But for much to the countryside, from Flint to Milford Haven, 
it was in the hands of the Welsh, and they would not let the English apparatus of government at any level move freely. If you were not Owen's men, you were an enemy, and it was becoming readily apparent that he was taking on a much more kingly tone, expecting and demanding fealty from his fellow Welshmen. The reality was Owen had made at some stage a change of heart, that this now was not about regaining what had been lost strictly to himself, but rather it was about what had been lost for all of Wales. This was as much a national movement as it was a personal project. The more he received oaths of allegiance, and the more obvious it was to his fellow Welshmen that they were now believers in this project with him. Owen may or may not have intended for this when he set out two years ago, but now it was obvious to all that he was the real monarch in Wales. He was creating a new style of Welsh government based on an English system, but respected for its Welsh roots. This was still the genesis, but it was hard to see it as anything else for the Welsh people by the end of 1403. He was no longer Owen Glyndwr, he was our Owen, the true prince and leader of Wales. In November of 1403, Owen then reached an important point in his charm offensive internationally. He had sent an ambassador to the Pope and was given a boon by the standard of the day to have his own personal clergy who could oversee his confessions. It was a tacit acknowledgement of the legitimacy of the rebellion, not just as a treason, but rather something more honorable than that. Unfortunately, we have no further details of the discussion between the two sides, but likely the Pope felt that, as far as he was comfortable, he could cross the English king, at least to this degree. It may not seem like a lot, but it was still a very impressive achievement at this point in time, in a time when kings were seen as representatives of Christ on earth, even at this point. As 1403 closed, the Welsh kept up the pressure, now attacking Cardiff and Harlech and Aberystwyth, areas nowhere near each other. Their only commonality is the fact that they had very important castles and were all coastal towns on the edge of Wales, all very strongly held English locations as well. And they were able and willing to keep this pressure up in the middle of harsh weather at a time which was atypical for medieval combat in Northern Europe of this period. It was actually very uncommon to fight wars in winter. As 1404 opened, the war had entered a new phase, one that would see the Welsh reach their highest point of success and allow all the rebels to dream of independence in reality, not just in theory. But at the end of the year, they would have a new prince and a new government and new allies ones that would make a massive difference on their campaigns to come and, as I said, give them the opportunity, the possibility, and the dream of a government of their own. And with that, I'd like to thank you for listening. I hope if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can always reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com. You can also join us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast or follow me on Twitter at Welsh History Pod. Or if you're so inclined, you can also follow my personal account, which is at LinsteadDM on Twitter. 
And thank you, everyone, for your support, your help. Thank you again to my patrons who help keep the lights on with this podcast and keep it so that I can continue to purchase the books I need in order to do the research that I desperately need to do. This has been an enjoyable period studying this point in history, and uh, I look forward to continuing to cover Owen for probably many months to come. Until next time, everyone, take care. Have a great day. Bye. This has been a Distractions Media production. And for everything we do, check out distractionsmedia.com. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go.